Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, just a note to say that this episode was recorded back in August before news of the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Welcome to Something Rhymes with Purple. This is a podcast all about words and language, and it's presented by me, Charles Brandreth, based in London, in the United Kingdom, and my colleague and long-standing friend, the world's leading lexicographer, in my view, that's not her own opinion, but she is recognized internationally as one of the, the great wordsmiths of our time. It's Susie Dent, who is in Oxford, home of the Hello. Oxford English Dictionary. How are you? How's, how's everything been for you, Susie? Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm very well, actually. It's been um, it's been quite a long week for me because I've had lots of uh, countdown recordings for those who do watch um, the show in um, Britain and it's in some places across the world. It's a game show, and we pre-record them, so we do five shows a day, and we do three of those days um, in a week. So that's 15 shows in three days. So it's quite heavy going, but a lot of fun. And as you know, I love talking about words, and look forward to continuing now. And have you seen the exciting news that I saw reported in the papers? Uh, Some work that's been done, I think it was at York University, establishing that languages that we may have learnt as children, they're still lurking in our head. Did you you read about this? Do you know about this? This will really encourage you. You know, you are, I I learnt French as a small boy, Mm -hmm. and you learnt German when you were a girl, and Mm -hmm. you were often quoting German. I know it's your favourite language other than English. Yeah. And... Uh, it turns out that speaking a language like German or French, if you learned it as a child, it's just like riding a bicycle. And the ability never leaves you, even if you don't practice it. And wow. this is the real research has been done on this. A study is suggesting that people who learned a foreign language in school are as good at speaking it 50 years after their last exam as they were when they studied it. Isn't that amazing? That is. Uh, That's uh, so, incredible. Yeah. Even if people who'd not used the skill, in the intervening half century, they were found to be as adept as they were when they got the qualification at 16. 500 people who'd taken French GCSE on A-level in the 1970s, they, they were asked to do a French vocabulary and grammar test, and the results showed no significant drop-off in performance. Isn't that amazing? And this underlines what I have long thought, that if it's in there particularly in terms of words and language, it really is in there. That's why you can recover, for example, the nursery rhymes or the poems you learnt when you were a small child. It's all in there. 
yeah. which is fantastic. And you can you can open the, the beaker, open the vessel, and pour out the words. Yeah. And I'm saying that because what I want us to talk about today is uh, unleashing the vessel, pouring out the words, and things to do with with vessels. Receptacles. Um, receptacles. That's what we want to talk about. Water Lovely. vessels. Yes. What do, what do you see? I have water in a glass. Do you have water during these recordings? Um, I don't actually have anything at the moment. I should do. I have water all the way through um, in the studio, but sometimes I put in, you know, you can get those um, fizzy vitamin tablets that you drop in. Um, I always try and sneak one of those into my glass um, whenever I'm recording Countdown. And then I'm told promptly to put it under the desk because it looks like a urine sample. So, uh, but normally it is a glass. Yes. But there were people who would drink their own. Was it? Was it Mahatma Gandhi or Mr. Nehru? I remember. Uh, some oh, yes, great there was a lot of Indian people. Figure. And the act- actor Sarah Mills, if you remember her. Sarah Miles. Miles. Sarah Miles. Different family, but yes. same idea. They drank their own urine and said it was very good for you. Well, we've talked about this in our medical episode, I think, that there were um, doctors who could diagnose what kind of diabetes people suffered from by tasting their urine. So if it was sweet, it is diabetes mellitus. Um, And if it was insipid, it is diabetes insipidus. So the two types of diabetes. And they became known as piss prophets. (sighs) Yes. Only a few minutes in and people are thinking all over the world, this is why I tune in (laughs) to learn about the piss prophets. Well, I want to learn all about vessels, jugs, pitchers, ewers, beakers. And I want you to feel, if you're listening to this, people sometimes say to me, where do you dredge these things up from, these stories (laughs) that you tell, these names? Well, I don't. I don't dredge them up. They're in there. And what I've discovered from this research is that everything we knew as children, it's all in there waiting to come out again. Mm. And I want to draw from you, Susie Dent, today the origins of some of these words. Can we begin with the very water vessel itself? A vessel. Yes. Tell yes. me about a vessel. It's quite a simple, it's story, really. So it came from the Romans, um, and we all know that, you know, drinking vessels are some of the earliest artefacts that have ever been found from ancient civilizations. And in this case, it comes from late Latin vasellum, which means little vessel. Essentially, it meant exactly the same thing. But vessel has got so many different applications in uh, in English and in life. It's it's a container um, used to hold liquid, which is how we're talking about it today. Um, in biblical use, it's a person who embodies a particular quality. Lord, use this lowly vessel. Let me serve you as you will. Um, in anatomy, it's a, a channel or a duct that conveys blood or other bodily fluid. And in botany, it's one of the tubular structures in a plant in its vascular system that conducts water and mineral and nutrients from the root. So lots and lots of different meanings, but all go back to that idea of being something that carries, that holds, um, and that sort of, you know, almost comes to embody something. Very good. Did you ever see the film that was, for me, my favourite film of my childhood, The Court Jester with Danny Kaye? No. People of my generation will all be, when they hear the word vessel, they immediately think about the vessel with the pestle that has the brew that is true. There was a sequence (laughs) in this film where Danny Kaye has a conversation about where some poison has been placed. And uh, Griselda, who is helping him, says, listen, I have put a pellet of poison in one of the vessels. Which one? The one with the figure of a pestle. So the vessel with the pestle, yes, but you don't want the vessel with the pestle. You want the chalice from the palace. 
Oh, I don't want the vessel with the vessel. I want the chalice from the palace. The chalice from the palace, yeah. It's a little crystal chalice with the figure of a palace. So the chalice from the palace has the pellet with the poison. No, the pellet with the poison's in the vessel with the vessel. Oh, the pellet with the vessel. The pestle with the vessel. The vessel with the pestle. What about the palace from the chalice? Anyway, it goes on like this. It is hilarious. Wow. And I recommend it. And um, go to YouTube. If any of you haven't heard this song sung or this whole number, this routine, you're in for a treat. Um, the Vessel with the Pestle, Danny Kay, the court jester. Vessel. Chalice is more of a, a religious thing, isn't it? Yes, we think about the chalice at um, communion, don't we, um, as well. And um, yes, yeah, so that goes back to the Latin calyx, which meant a cup, uh, essentially. So again, a sort of another ancient word with lots of what we call cognates in other languages, denoting a kind of goblet of some kind. So uh, you know what gob uh, means. Um, it means uh, mouth. Um, essentially. So in French, gobe um, was to open one's mouth. It also gave us, remember, I think one of my trios once upon a time was the gob mouche, uh, which translates literally as a fly swallower <laughs> um, and denoting somebody who's so gullible because their mouth is open all the time and they will just literally swallow anything. Um, so a gobble um, is related to the gob that is the mouth. That's the goblet. Goodness. So it let, it, you let things into the mouth with a goblet. I mean, that's how you use Le your goblet. goblet. Exactly. Le, Le goblet. Yeah. What about a jug? Jug is a strange one for such a sort of earthy, uh, you know, English word. Um, you'd think that it, it just had a very simple kind of Germanic origin, maybe something from Latin. But we don't know quite where it comes from. But there are conjectures that it's linked to uh, the name Joan or Joanna. Um, and a nickname was jug or juggin. Now, particularly, this was applied to a maid servant or a mistress. It was a kind of term of slight disparagement, really. Just as, um, do you remember, we've spoken in the past about how proper names are applied to objects um, or, or certain professions. So an Abigail was a lady's maid, for example. So there is a chance that it goes back to Joan or Joanna. And because they were maid servants, perhaps the idea is that they were carrying jugs for the house but you know, its its journey is very unclear and hazy. Okay, I'm not sure about that one. A pitcher. A pitcher. So this is what the Americans call a jug, and this isn't related to the pitchfork, where pitching is just sort of literally throwing or heaving something, or sort of you know sticking a tool in something. Um, it actually goes back to the old French pichier, uh, meaning a pot, which in turn is based on Latin picarium. A ewer. Do you know, this was a new one to me, really. So a ewer is, is if I look this up, it's it's um, usually the trade name for a bedroom water jug. So if you go back, I guess, you know, century or so, you will find people obviously with no taps or faucets, but just with um, a basin and, uh, and a jug where they would perform their morning ablutions. So that's a ewer. Is that how you understand it? Yes. It is. Yes. Okay. So not related to a female sheep um, at all and everything to do, strangely, with an old French corruption, I suppose, of the Latin aquaria, simply from aqua, meaning water. So it, it kind of morphed quite a lot in the course of its journey. But again, it's a receptacle for water, but it kind of zoned, zoomed in rather on that very specific sense of a pitcher with a wide spout that is used for morning washing. Is a beaker something you drink out of or something you pour from? A beaker? Hmm, interesting. Um, I 
you, I would say beaker. I would normally use beaker in if it, there was one in my cupboard for a kind of plastic children's drinking yum, cup. Yum. That's what I would call a beaker. Um, and nothing to do with beaks, oh, as you might imagine. That's um, and everything to do with the Viking word bika, meaning a drinking bowl oh. uh, or large drinking container. So a bit of a false friend there. You might think it's, you know, your beak is your mouth and you put your beaker in your mouth. But no, it's from the Vikings. There are grander words too, an amphora. Again, you will find um, amphora, ancient amphora, in many uh, museums, um, and you know, sort of, their design is often quite sort of ornate and elaborate. So it's a two-handed vessel, ah. and it was used by the ancients for holding wine or often um, oil, but always with two handles, often oval-bodied, and they have this kind of pointed base. Um, and with the Greeks, I think an amphora was also about nine gallons, so it was a liquid measure. Um, as well. And it simply goes back to um, the word amphi or the prefix amphi, meaning on both sides. Um, and the fordis was carried, so it's carried on both sides because of those two handles. Um, and it's that amphi also gave us other words in English, like an amphibian, somebody who can exist on in both water and land and on land. So it's the kind of both sense of things. This is not a word with which I'm familiar at all, but uh, I've come across it looking up things for to talk about today, the aquamanalium, aquamanile. It's a jug, apparently, yes. in the shape of an animal. Is this a well-known yes, word? Yes, and it's quite incredible. So I think it's aquamanile, uh, that's how you, or aquamanili as well, is from the Latin, and it was a basin for washing the hands. And it didn't really specify an animal until the 19th century when it was frequently one made in the form of an animal or a bird. And they can be quite elaborate and quite wonderful. Um, but it goes back to aqua, meaning water, and um, the, the manus, the hand, that you'll find in lots of other words like manicure, manipulate, etc. Yeah. There's a crema uh, here, which is a small mm. jug for milk or, or cream. And it's called a crema, yeah. I assume, simply because it contains cream. Exactly. Yeah, simple as that. Yeah. Oh, here's simple an, as that. an interesting yeah. one. A poron, a wine pitcher with a long, thin spout. Mm. I've never heard of a... Have you heard of a poron? Paron? I've seen them before, but I didn't know poron is what it was called. So ah. it originated in Catalonia. And the whole point of it is that it's it's handed around a group and it's got one of those long, thin spouts. So you can open your mouth and pour the wine, if it is wine, directly into your mouth without having to touch it with your lips. And that's why it can get passed around a group because it's very hygienic. You're not putting your lips to it. I'm, that, I'm not familiar with that. The only kind of vessel I am familiar with for pouring wine from is the carafe. We'll have a carafe of wine, yes. which I take to be a French word, carafe. But is that its origin? Is it French in origin? It's actually oh. Arabic, believe it or not, um, a carafe. Um, so again, a bit of a false friend. I like it. It does sound a bit French. Um, and I think it probably came to us via French. But ultimately, um, it's probably from the Persian or the Arabic, meaning pretty much the same thing, but ultimately from a verb, me verb meaning to draw or lift water. You gave us the vessel with the pestle and, and the chalice with the palace. What about the flagon with the dragon? Flagon. Um, is, flagon, is it related to yeah. flask? Where does that come from? It is related to flask. And um, yeah, so nothing um, particularly spectacular here, quite quite a sort of simple one. And I think it arrived in sort of medieval English. There is flascon in or flasconem in Latin, meaning a flask, and they're all related. But the reason I like this one, Giles, is that it's actually related, bizarrely, to the word fiasco. 
So fiasco today is a totally humiliating failure. But in Italian in the 19th century, a fiasco was a bottle related to flask and flagon. And far fiasco was to make a bottle, literally. But it began to be used in the theatre to mean to kind of slip up or fail in a performance. And no one quite knows why. Possibly... You know, we, we kind of think in English of bottling it, don't we? Um, but that came a bit later from the rhyming slang, bottle and glass ass because you fall on your ass. So this came before. So it's possible that it's referring to a glass maker's botched efforts to make a, you know, a glass bottle. But nobody quite knows. Shrouded in mystery, that one. But flask and fiasco were actually etymological cousins. So losing your bottle, where does that, that expression same thing. It means that you sort of the, the bottom's well. You, you sort of <laughs> you fall on your ass, I suppose. Gosh. Yeah, bottle and glass ass. So you lose your bottle. Somebody you say to somebody, "Oh, you lost your bottle," meaning you've lost your nerve. Yes. It, it's because you ended up on your ass because it's rhyming slang. And bottle also, and glass we have ass. Are you Aristotle sure? as well. So Aristotle was used too for um, for your ass, and that was all kind of part of the mix too. Um, your Aristotle, your bottle, and and glass, yeah. Oh, how interesting. You've fallen on your Aristotle, meaning you've fallen on your backside. <laughs> We're staying with that. Falling on your ass. So it's the same kind of idea, far fiasco. Well, I love a jug and I love a Toby jug. Now, what's interesting to me is I think that you drink from a Toby jug, but you pour something into a Toby jug from an ordinary jug. Is a Toby jug something you pour from or drink from? And why is it called a Toby jug? Uh, now, this is a lovely one. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of start backwards. I'm going to start with the mug because we all, well, most of us use mugs for our tea or our coffee or whatever. Now, have you any idea what the link might be between the mug that we drink from and either being mugged, unfortunately, you know, if you are stolen from and rather nastily on the streets or having an ugly mug? No. Any I, idea? Well, I mean, mug to me means face. Yeah. Uh, is, it, is that the connection? It is the connection because um, if you go back a couple of centuries, you will find um, mugs with kind of caricatures of faces on them. So Charles Dickens, I think, refers to these um, quite a lot as well. So these sort of mugs that represented this kind of grotesque human face became very popular, particularly, I think, in the 18th century. That gave us the origin of mug as a face. Then it gave rise to the idea of a mug as an insult for a stupid person because their face was kind of blank and unintelligent. And then mug became a term for somebody who's been duped, really, by a card shop um, or a confidence trickster who's sort of been mugged or mugged off. Um, and it's a mug's game. But they all go back to the face sense because to mug was originally a boxing term meaning to punch someone in the face. So if you have been pickpocketed, you have metaphorically been slapped in the face. So they're all linked. And, and the mugs that we drink from, as I say, are all associated with that idea of, of the mug as a face. And I mentioned that because you were talking about Toby jugs. And Toby jugs also were... They, they sort of carried a human form, didn't they? They were jugs in the form of a, a stout old man in a tricorn hat. And they were said to be based on a drinker, hard drinker from Yorkshire called Henry Elwes. And his nickname was Toby Philpot. Philpot, obviously a play on fill your pot. So we think 
that is where it comes from. But some think it was named after Sir Toby Belch from Twelfth Night, I have to say, the Toby Jug. So just to add that in, but I my bet is on that um, stout old man in a tricorn hat. Very good. The last thing yes. is a toss pot. And I know I've talked to you about this before when we talked about drinking in one of our past episodes, but a toss pot was originally, like Toby Philpot, somebody who tossed their pot of beer back and uh, enjoyed the contents a little bit too often to the result that they, with the result that their behaviour became uh, both obstreperous and disorderly. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. We've had a most intriguing letter from Nick about a cat named Bo. This is from Nick Seymour, who says, Hi, Susie and Charles. I was just listening to the Feelies episode, F-E-L-E-S, and was amused by the story of the name of Susie's cat, Bo. I have a friend who has a cat named Bo as well, but with a similarly interesting origin. About two years ago, my friend Charles was walking home and heard the mewling of a distressed cat. After following the sound, they discovered the cat was inside the front of a parked car. With the help of a firefighter, they opened the car up and rescued the kitten inside. Charles has lived in the United States almost all of his life, but his family is from South Africa and England, so his accent and vocabulary will slip into a less Americanized mode, particularly after he's been spending time with family. As such, he named his new kitten Bo, short for Bonnet where they'd found him. I think it's so clever, since all his American friends know that part of the car as the hood, so they don't pick up on it from the story without the extra translation. They most often assume he's named after the comedian Robert Bo Burnham. Loving the podcast from Philadelphia. Susie, do you know the work of Robert Vickering Bo Burnham? The American comedian, musician, writer, actor, director. I don't. His work often combines elements of musical sketch and stand-up comedy, apparently, with auteur filmmaking. He's only 32, and people are calling themselves Bo because of him. That's amazing. Oh, well, that's much more upmarket than my Bo, as you know, who is named after Bo Peep or was by Battersea Cats and Dogs Home. Um, so no such cultural associations for mine. But just to remind you about the bonnet and the hood, um, in British, the bonnet is the, the metal canopy, obviously, that covers the engine. Um, it, it's all about covering, really. So as a bonnet covers the head, so likewise, a hood covers the head. It's as simple as that. But there's distinction between British and American English there. Very good. Whenever I, the people I know called Bo, it's usually an abbreviation for Bosey, as in Bosey Douglas, the boyfriend uh. of Oscar Wilde, who was known as uh. he was known as Bosey because when he was a boy, I think he pronounced uh, he, he was known as sort of Boisey, and that became Bosey. Anyway. Oh, okay. Uh, childhood names. Well, we have we have one of my favourite emails also came in, I have to say this week, um, from James Patterson, who is a Tintin fan. Uh, are you a Tintin fan, Giles? Hergé. I love Tintin. Le Capitaine Haddock, um, the, the Thompson <laughs> twins. Absolutely. Oh, I, yes. I, I, Snowy. Oh, 
Exactly. Snowy in English, Milou in French. Yes, Milou, Milou. You'll, you'll enjoy this. So this is from James Patterson, who says, Dear Susie and Giles, while reading the Tintin comic Prisoners of the Sun, I came across several inventive insults hurled by Captain Haddock. Can you enlighten as to their origins and meanings? Okay, so the ones that he's come across here in Prisoners of the Sun, I have to say my favourite is blistering barnacles, which he says a lot. This is an old sea dog. What's his relationship with Tintin? I've forgotten. Oh, he's a kind of, they're, they're allies. Captain Haddock is his friend. Yeah, he's a friend. He is absolutely a friend. Yes, okay. So these are the ones. I'll just run through them very quickly and then I'll try and enlighten you, James, if I can. So there's slubber de gullions, bashy bazooks, pithecanthropic, pithecanthropic. So it's pithecanthropic, it's really hard to say, pithecanthropic mountebanks, all of these with exclamations after them, poltroons that's another really good one um and uh finally dory fours um as well so i don't remember these ones from tintin i think i read them i need to go back to them really um i love the tintin shop in london's covent garden if you just go in there we'll get completely lost i have a tintin clock um in my house anyway i will try and enlighten you on these because these are all derived bar one as far as i can see from the oxford english dictionary or at least you would say that Hergé knew his um his his vocabulary so slubber de gullions i think it's been one of my trio before it's a slobbering or dirty fellow that's how a slubber de gullion is defined in the dictionary from the 17th century or a worthless sloven and the first mention from 1612 is contaminous pestiferous slubber de gullions which itself is worthy of captain haddock i think then there is bashy bazooks. Now, I couldn't find this anywhere. And I think, but this is my guess, and James, you might have your own. Um, it might be a riff on gadzooks or adzooks, um, which in turn were sort of um, minced oaths, as we call them, or euphemisms for adzooks, God's hooks, um, and they referred to the nails on the cross. So these were verbal sidesteps from using the Lord's name in vain. That's all I can think of with bashy bazooks. Do you have any idea for that, Giles? What I want to say is this. You're mentioning Hergé because he is the creator of Ah, uh, Did he not write it? Uh, well, no, he did write it in French. Yeah. Uh, but I happen to know when I began working in publishing in the early 1970s, I worked with a man called Michael Turner. And he and another person, a lady, whose name I'm trying to remember, they were the translators, I think, of Tintin. And I think that they will be, and he was into words and language in a very big way. I think of course, these of course, of course, how stupid of me. I think these are yeah. the translators' works of genius. Of course. Inspired, absolutely, because they, they kept very accurately, because they had to go with the pictures to, to what was going on in yeah. the story. But I think these are, are brilliant um uh, British inventions. Or maybe I have a slight recollection that the lady involved may have been Australian. So I'm going to... I said they knew their dictionaries, of course, yes, not Hergé himself, although, as you say in French, they will be equally inventive. But Bashi Bazooks eluded me a little bit. On to the Pithecanthropus. Now, he says Pithecanthropic mountebanks. And I've talked about mountebanks before. These were the charlatans who would sell their quack 
wares at markets up and down medieval Britain and they would mount a bank or a bench in order to sell them and proclaim to the to the crowd. So they were charlatans and frauds essentially. And Pithecanthropus was a hypothetical creature that was said to bridge the gap in evolutionary development between an ape and a man. So it's an ape man. So what Captain Haddock is saying, you're sort of, you know, you're only half human and you're stupid. And we all know that apes really aren't, but that was his insult of choice. A poltroon, that goes back to the Latin pullus, meaning a young chicken. Um, so that's quite established in English. And finally, I didn't know this, Dory four. Did you know this one, Charles? No. Go on for it. No. So it comes from the French Dory four, meaning a Colorado beetle originally. But the English sense was introduced apparently by Sir Harold Nicholson who introduced it to mean a person who draws attention to the minor errors made by others. So really sort of annoyingly pedantic and quite pestering with it. And so in The Spectator from 1949, Harold Nicholson says, these Colorado beetles will have spent hours searching for a misprint in the Oxford English Dictionary. Although these Dory Fours may achieve the short delight of proving that an author has made a mistake on page 479, they will never know the long, slow pleasure of writing a large book with continuous application. So it's a, it's a persistent critic. I do recommend the diaries of Sir Harold Nicholson. Uh, they are among the, the best 20th century English diaries. He was a politician as well as a, a writer. And I was lucky enough to know his son, Nigel Nicholson. And if people are listening who can tell us all about the translations of the Tintin books, I would be grateful. We would be grateful because I don't think we've credited the right people. And I think it's quite a, I I think it's quite a complicated story because, of course, uh, Hergé, Georges Rémy, uh, was born a long time ago, back in 1907, and he died. I remember he died in the, the 1980s. And he he created 24 Tintin books as Hergé, and they were they were translated over many years by many different hands. And the person I mentioned, Michael Turner, he may not have been the first translator, but I do remember that, because uh, I read them first in French, Tintin was Tintin, Dupont, Dupont became Thompson and Thompson, uh, Milou became Stoey. Uh, Captain Haddock wasn't changed. Uh, Bianca Castafiore was unchanged. Can you remember what Professor Tornasol became? Sunflower? No, Professor Calculus. That's what it means. Oh, does Calculus, mean sound. of course. Does, so they of obviously course. did. I didn't think there was a sunflower in, in Tintin. Yes, Calculus, of course. So they. So it's it's quite interesting. Let's explore more. And if you do know the answers, and if in fact if you are a descendant, because I don't think they'll be still with us, or maybe they are, if you are the translator of Tintin into English and of course many other languages, um, please get in touch with us and tell us more about it. Yeah, hats off to we're, you and, and incredible language yeah, skills. We're purple at somethingelse.com. We are, and uh, it's time for my trio and Giles's poem. And by the way, if you're struggling with any of the spelling for my trio, because I realised that I um, I could go quite quickly with these, they can be found in the programme description blurb of each episode, along with the title and the author of Giles's poem. So that will give you more info there. Um, right, well, I'm going to start with something related to drinking vessels, Giles. I think it's been one of my trio, but from a long while ago, from one of the early episodes. And that's a zarf. You remember what a zarf is? I do. It's, the, it's, a, it's what you put around a hot coffee cup. It's the piece of cardboard that goes exactly. around a hot coffee cup to keep it less hot. 
Is that right? Exactly. That's absolutely right. That's the modern incarnation, but actually it goes back to the incredibly ornamental, ornate, often golden cup-shaped holders that we used for hot coffee cups in um, in Eastern countries. So some of them are really, really beautiful. But yes, that's what you um, rather pretentiously, if you like, can go in to a local coffee shop and ask for. Could I have a zarf instead of a sleeve? So that's my first one. So second one, it might lead you astray, this one, but it's aprosexia. Aprosexia, and it is an inability to concentrate due to a distracted mind. Now, the distracted mind has nothing to do with sex. It actually, this goes back to a meaning without in Greek, and then prosexis meaning heedfulness. So, in other words, you're not concentrating on what you're doing because your mind is elsewhere. Aprosexia, quite a useful one, I think. And finally, I just love the sound of this, and just the very act of doing it is something that we should all do more often. Fruits. F-R-O-O-N-C-E, fruits, and it means to frolic exuberantly. Mm. We could all deal with more fruiting, don't you think? Yeah, very much so. How intriguing. Well, it's very time good. for your poem for us. Well, I thought I would do something a little bit different this week. A beautifully imagined poems. So this little volume fell uh, came through the post. Beautifully imagined poems, said Sir Derek Jacobi. I thought, oh, I'll read one of these. Uh, the book is called Lilac White by Martin Hesford. And uh, I just dipped into it. And I'm going to read one of the poems to you. See if it strikes you as unusual. It strikes me as quite unusual. It goes like this. The glamour is coming. The Victorian ghosts are being hung back into their wardrobes. The new apparitions are rising. Do not be angry. Do not be afraid. It has been one way, your way, for a very long time. Share and share alike my genderless lipstick. Kiss me, honey, honey, kiss me. I forgive you, I love you. Will you love me ever? I am your eyes, shadow, your lilac, white, sparkle, star, flower. Ooh, it's got a sting, that one, hasn't it? It is. I, I, I don't mm. quite understand it. I think I see where it's coming from, and it's making mm. us try to look at love and relationships in new ways. In different ways, uh, yeah. But anyway, it's, it's... It's always been your way. It's, also that kiss me, honey, honey, yeah. kiss me. Right? There was that song in there. Anyway, mm, interesting. Martin Hesford, he's a BAFTA-nominated writer. He wrote the screenplays for Fantabulosa, starring Michael Sheen. That was all about um, uh, Kenneth Williams. And a wonderful film that I loved, Mrs. Lowry and Son, which was about the artist Lowry, who were played by Timothy Spall, and Vanessa Redgrave played Mrs. Lowry. I, re I recommend, I really recommend that movie if you can get to see it. And uh, I think his poetry is rather intriguing. Yeah, very intriguing. Well, we hope you loved it too. And um, we're so happy that you are following us um, and uh, and listening in, whether or not you are members of the Purple Club or indeed the Purple Plus Club, where you can find us ad-free and with a few sort of extra bits and pieces that we have a lot of fun recording. And um, we're on social media too. You can find us on at Something Rhymes on Twitter and Facebook or at Something Rhymes with on Instagram. Something Rhymes with Purple is a something else in Sony Music Entertainment production. It was produced by Harriet Wells with additional production from Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale, and the man himself. Is he is he a Captain Haddock or is he a Tintin, do you think? <laughs> he certainly needs translation. Definitely Haddock. Yeah, indeed. 
Absolutely. He's got the beard. <laughs> Actually, he it's does scurly. look a little bit. But I always liked Captain Haddock, it must be said. Didn't you like him? Yeah. I did, I did actually. Should we should we call Gully Haddock from now on? Yeah, he's he's our Captain Haddock. 